I want to set the scene for you so that you have a picture of what we're talking about. It is a beautiful, beautiful lakeside property. It's in northern Israel, and you're actually on a hillside. You're looking down on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is not a sea, per se. It's actually just a pretty big lake, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, and the view from where we're sitting is amazing. This is the kind of place that very rich people build houses in California. That's what happens. And it's got an amazing view, and nobody is paying attention to the view. And the reason that nobody's paying attention to the view is because the greatest preacher of all time is now beginning to share truth with them, and he has grabbed their attention. We're in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus is preaching in the very area in which he was raised. This is his area, but he's already started drawing crowds from all over the place. The followers are everywhere, and the buzz around Jesus is becoming significant, even though <clears throat> he really hasn't done much teaching, at least not to large groups. It's just that the word has gotten out about his miraculous healing power. Jesus can touch a leper and he's made clean. Jesus can put his hands on your ears and suddenly you can hear again. Jesus can say the word and a crippled man gets up to walk. It's an amazing thing and people have seen it over and over again and they're telling their friends and the word is getting out, which by the way is pretty interesting, right? Because has Jesus ever done anything good for you? Anybody? Yes? No? Because uh, maybe we ought to be telling our friends too, right? The word's supposed to get out about Jesus. And the word is getting out even though nobody really knew kind of what this guy's message was or what he was all about. It was just pretty clear that he seemed to be from God because he had miraculous powers. And people began to wonder, could this be the deliverer? that we've been looking for, that we've been praying for, that our ancestors were hoping for. Lots of people knew something about his powers, but, but nobody really knew much about what he had to teach. And so the crowds gathered around him by the thousands, and when he sat down to speak, the people were still arriving, still milling about. And there was a, a lot of confusion about what was going on. They're still talking among themselves. And, and that's a challenge for a preacher. If you ever take a preaching class or even just a public speaking course at your local community college, they're going to teach you right away that one of the first things you have to do is you have to grab the audience's attention. You gotta get their attention at the beginning. You gotta do something to get them to notice. You gotta get something to grab and hold on to their attention. Now, I've been doing this for a long time, but before I was a senior pastor, I was a youth pastor, which is really still where my heart beats. And, and I just have such a heart for teenagers. And I, I used to have such a blast speaking to teenagers because you've got to do something to get their attention also. And back in those days, in the olden days, when I was a youth pastor, we did things like swallow goldfish to get their attention. We, we would, we would uh, juggle water balloons to get their attention. Or 
the, the, my favorite one that youth pastors all sort of had to learn was you had to get some dental floss and snort it up your nose and then cough it out your mouth and then you do this and sort of floss the back of your throat. Yeah, right? Do I have your attention? Yeah, I didn't do the dental floss thing. Just telling you about it was enough. Um, but it's not easy to get people's attention. I can't even get you guys to come in off the patio in time to start the second service. So it's not easy to do, but, but Jesus had no goldfish. He's fresh out of dental floss, and he's going, how do I get their attention? And so he sits down, and a hush begins to fall in the crowd, even as people are starting to, to file in and find a place. And he opens with these incredibly shocking statements that causes people to really sit up and take notice. They're called the Beatitudes. We talked about them last week. Jesus says, you know, if you really want to be blessed, you have to be poor in spirit. If you, the, the really blessed people are those who mourn. And people start looking at each other and wondering, is he serious? What is he talking about? I better listen and see where he's going with this. And, and throughout the Beatitudes, he begins to picture, uh, paint a picture, if you will, of a way of life that none of them understood anything about at this point. And now he absolutely has their attention. There are no more people milling about. Nobody else is digging through their, their uh, bag looking for something to eat. Nobody is uh, you know, texting. <clears throat> Nobody's doing any of that kind of stuff. He has their attention completely. And he begins now once he has their attention in Matthew chapter five and verse 13. And that's where we're, we're gonna begin this morning. <clears throat> so if you've got a Bible, you wanna open to the first book of the New Testament, which is the book of Matthew. Get in there to chapter five, and we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 13. And we're just gonna look at uh, about um, three or four verses this morning and get a sense of something really, really important that Jesus wanted to say once he had their attention. Here we go. Matthew 5, 13. You, Jesus says, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about what Jesus just said there. But before we get to thinking about what Jesus said there, the thing that always captures my attention with these verses is not what Jesus says. It's what he doesn't say. What Jesus doesn't say really catches my attention because, because he doesn't say, hey, everybody, watch out. It is a dark world. And this world, the darkness is just encroaching upon people. And it doesn't seem to matter what happens. It just gets darker and darker and darker. And everything is falling apart. So watch out because this world is filled with evil people. This world is filled with corrupt governments. There are liars everywhere. Nobody seems to have the right values. <clears throat> there's too much crime. There, there's too much uh, pollution. There, there are too many super rich people. And there are too many super poor people. 
and, and, and the educational system is broken and taxes are too high and we can't trust the soldiers and the police are corrupt. In fact, the culture is so far gone that there's nothing that can be done to redeem it. So lock your doors, folks. Lock your doors, protect your children, and, and, and start storing up things like weapons and food because I'm not sure we're gonna make it out of this mess. That's what I would expect him to say. And the reason I expect him to say that is because so many of his followers are saying that today. That, that it's, it seems to me one of the most common things that happens when you get a group of Christians standing around and talking is they're talking about what a mess the world has become. Can you believe this? Can you believe that? What are we gonna do about this? Oh my goodness, did you hear about this? Did you see on the news? What about this? And everywhere I turn, I hear people who claim to be followers of Christ saying those things every day. Now remember, there are thousands of people hearing Jesus preach from this hillside. But his main audience is his disciples. He's teaching his followers, those men and women who have devoted their lives to him. And he's calling them, he's calling us, not to just stand around cursing the darkness, but to shine a light for all to see. So that people will recognize God for who he is and give him the honor and the worship that he deserves. He actually uses two metaphors to describe his followers. He, he says, you are salt and you are light. Now, the light metaphor is easy to understand because we all know exactly what he is referring to. You can be in a completely dark room. You turn on a light or even light a candle or a match and the darkness is severely impacted by the light. No matter how dark it is, all it takes is one light and the light changes everything, right? Light chases away darkness. Anywhere light and darkness collide, the light always overcomes the darkness. The darkness never snuffs out the light. It's a simple metaphor. It's something we all are used to. It's something we all understand. And I think we all get what he's trying to say about the darkness of the world. I think we all understand what he's trying to say about a culture that is moving further and further from God. And as we move further and further from God, things get darker and darker. But he says, you are the light. So that's one metaphor. But then there's this other metaphor where he says, we are salt. And, and, and that is a little bit harder to understand. Now, this metaphor, you're the salt of the earth, that has become a colloquialism even for people who, who don't know it came from Jesus. Even for people who have no idea what the Sermon on the Mount is about, they still talk about, you know, people with good values, good solid people, salt of the earth kind of folks. And, and so we've sort of got this idea what it means to be salt of the earth, but what did Jesus mean when he said it? It's, it's not an easy one to figure out because even in Jesus' day, salt had a ton of different uses. So it's really hard to know what he's referring to. Salt is used to flavor food then and now. It's, it's used as a preservative. It, it's used um, uh, to remove ice you know, from the roads. It's, it's used in uh, almost everything that we use in daily life. 
It's used to make uh, leather usable. It's used to make soap. It's used to make pottery. It's used in cleaning products. It's used in all of these kinds of things. We come into contact with salt many times a day, every single day. And we never even think about it because it's so common. Salt is one of the most common things in our world. It's essential to the human body for good health, but you get too much of it and you got a problem. Um, It's in the soil and in the rocks. And of course, it's in the ocean water, which covers two thirds of the earth. So it's hard to know if Jesus was thinking of one of those specific uses of salt when he said we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. But we do know this. Salt is plentiful, salt is ordinary, salt is uh, useful. And we don't usually think about salt unless it's absent when it's needed. Do you ever accidentally get a bag of salt-free potato chips? (laughs) I say accidentally because no one would do that on purpose, right? right? A potato chip without salt is an abomination to God, right? And and you just take one bite and you're like, ah, ah, get it out of my mouth. This is terrible. Put a little salt on it and you're like, yes, sir, this is good, right? We notice it when it's absent, when we need it and we don't have it. I used to get these horrible leg cramps in the middle of the night when I was a kid because I was always playing sports and running around and never stopping and just using my legs constantly. I would wake up screaming in the middle of the night because these horrible cramps that had just grabbed my legs while I was sleeping. And my mother used to make me drink a glass of salt water. She'd just pour salt in the water, stir it up and make me drink it because it was that lack of salt in my body was causing those things to happen. I didn't notice the salt until I knew how bad I needed it, right? And so Jesus seems to be getting at this idea that the the, the world desperately needs us to be salty. And he says, but but if if you lose your saltiness, what's the point? It's just good for being thrown out. So he says we're like salt. We need to be careful not to become useless. He says we're, we're light and we need to be careful not to be hidden, but we need to be put on display so the light has value to people. So the darkness of the world is implied here, but he never even mentions darkness. So fascinating because we want to talk about the darkness all the time. Jesus just understands that there's darkness and then brings the conversation around to the need for light. We need to shine because, of course, the world is dark. He calls us to be not focused on the problem, but in fact says you're here as a solution to the problem. See, Jesus came to earth for two basic reasons. He he came to earth to die on a cross, um, raised from the dead, so that he could defeat sin and death on our behalf, make it possible for us to have eternal life. He also came to start a disciple-making movement because he wants every generation and every people group to have the same opportunity to receive new life as as his original followers had that opportunity. So he didn't just come 
to, to minister to a certain group of people. And by the way, this is part of his genius. This is why I said last week, I think, that, that he has a tendency to send the crowds away. He has a tendency to minister to the crowd and then make them disperse. He has a tendency to say things to the crowd that causes the crowd to thin out. And, and then he uses that opportunity to focus on a few serious disciples who he is going to train up because they are going to become the ones who lead the church, they're going to make the next generation of disciples. And that generation is going to have to make the next generation of disciples and so on and so on down the line. And so he comes to pay the price for our sin and defeat sin and death on our behalf. But he also comes knowing he's going to have about 33 years on earth, about three years of public ministry. And then he is going back to heaven and it is going to be up to his followers to continue this movement. And I think they mostly thought that he'd be back in their lifetime. I think they mostly thought this was maybe a one or two generation of disciples thing. I don't think any of them in the first century probably had the idea that 2,000 years later, we would still be here trying to be salt and trying to be light in a world that is dark and decaying and rotting. But that was Jesus's plan all along. So he tells us we're supposed to be salt and light. Now, I mention all this because like many other Christians that I know, um, I'm getting sick and tired of the darkness of this world. Anybody else? I'm just getting sick and tired of the darkness of this world. My grandmother used to say, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And she was talking about the fact that Men had hair that touched their collars. <laughs> she, she was talking about the fact that Ricky and Lucy were now sleeping in the same bed on television. That was the kind of stuff that made her lose her mind. And she was saying, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I can't imagine what she would say today. It, it, it's getting dark. And it gets discouraging to watch our culture move further from God ignoring the very word of God, which is the only thing that is actually going to fix anything. And I get tired of it. And I, I get tired of government programs that are indoctrinating our children with humanistic philosophy. And, and I, get, I get tired of um, candidates for public office who seem to lack the moral character that we need in leaders. And, and I get tired of reading about crime statistics and abortion rates and domestic abuse and racism and fatherless families that have become so common in our culture. You just start listing these things and you just want to sigh. I see the darkness just like everybody else and all that darkness can be overwhelming if we're not careful. But guys... We are not the first people to notice the darkness. We are not the first generation to look around us and go, wow, people are far from God. We are not the first society to struggle with the challenges that we see surrounding us. This has been going on. Do you realize that God had to wipe out the entire human population in the days of Noah? And, and then it, it very quickly got to the place again where everybody was seeking their own way and creating their own gods and trying to do things that pleased themselves. See, 
this has been going on for a long time. I want, I want to show you what I'm talking about. Go to the Old Testament book of Psalms, and I want you to go to Psalm 73, and we're going to spend some time there, so you need to turn there. Basically, Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible, so if you just open up your Bible to the middle, you're probably going to find the book of Psalms, then go to Psalm 73. And as you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about it. This psalm is written about 3,000 years ago. And it, it's written by a guy by the name of Asaph. Now, um, if, you, if you don't know who Asaph is, Asaph is a contemporary of King David who we just spent time talking about. So, so it's around the same time as King David. And Asaph was the chief worship leader for the nation of Israel. At a time when David, the one who wrote most of the Psalms, was the king, he appointed this guy Asaph to be the chief worship leader for all of Israel. So whenever there was a worship gathering, whenever there were festivals, whenever there was a time of worship in the temple, uh, sacrifices were being made, Asaph was there and he was the one that was leading the people in worship. And, and so he's a very, very famous guy in his day. Everybody in Israel knows who he is. Everybody respects him. Everybody looks up to him. And uh, by the way, he wrote at least 14 of the Psalms that we have in our Bible. So, uh, you know, I don't know what level that puts you on, but when God lets you write Bible, that's impressive to me. So that's Asaph. He, he writes Psalms, and he wrote Psalm 73, but he's really transparent in this Psalm when he tells us that despite the fact that God called him to ministry, this, the, despite the fact that God gifted him tremendously, despite the fact that he had the highest level of, of ministry position you could get in Israel, he almost threw in the towel. He almost walked away from God, he tells us. He, he says he almost stumbled and fell away. His feet almost slipped. Why? Look at Psalm 73, verse one. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Let's stop there for a second. So here he is, this prominent ministry guy. He's given his whole life to following God. He's, he's been to their version of seminary. He's got degrees hanging on his wall. Everybody looks up to him. Everybody knows who he is, and he gets to write Bible. And he says, I got to the place where, you know what? My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And he goes on to talk about how I almost walked away from the whole thing. He almost stumbled and fell away from God. Why? What could possibly happen to make someone so godly and someone so prominent in ministry stumble and come so close to falling away? Look at verse three. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant." as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. By the way, when it says their body is fat, that's a good thing in that culture. It's a sign of prosperity and wealth and comfort. He says their body is fat. So, you know, <clears throat> some of us are just trying to live a biblical lifestyle. That's all I'm saying. 
He says, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked for there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They've increased in wealth. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. And wash my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He is witnessing injustice and inequity everywhere he looks. He is going through hardships. He says he feels stricken and, and he struggles every day. And yet he looks at people who pay no attention to God he looks at people who embrace wickedness, people who run from the truth of God's word, and he's like, and look at them. These people are driving Ferraris. These people are wearing diamonds. And I am serving God, and all I do is struggle. He's trying to serve God. He's trying to remain morally pure, but he looks around and he sees the, the, the wicked prospering. And it doesn't make any sense. There are countless examples of people who ignore God in every culture, even openly mock him. <laughs> and they are cashing the checks. And they are getting the awards. And everyone's cheering for them. And he looks at it and he goes, it just ain't right. It just ain't fair, and it's discouraging. He's sick and tired of the whole stinking system. And every time he goes to worship, he's reminded that he's supposed to live a pure life, a sacrificial life, care for God, care for others, make his life not about himself. And then he walks out of the worship service and he sees all these people who are making their lives about themselves, and they are happy. And he is disgusted by the whole thing. Have you been there? Because I have. Pandemics, wars, selfish, prideful, corrupt leaders, division even among God's people in our society that runs so deep that, that we won't even talk to each other in our own families because I don't like who you voted for or because or you have a different idea about vaccines than I do. Churches splitting because of this. The name of Christ being dishonored because we can't get along because the divisions are so great among us. The whole thing is exhausting. But what made Asaph almost fall away? I mean, after all, the world did not change overnight. He, he apparently was doing fine for a while, 
But then eventually the whole thing just weighed in on him. There, there's always been injustice. There's always been greed. There's always been corruption and arrogance among leaders. And apparently Asaph was doing just fine anyway until he wasn't. So what happened to knock him off track? It wasn't that the world changed. It was that his focus changed. Go back at that passage we just read. Look at verses three through 12. And, and I just want you to notice, like in my Bible, I highlighted it. Just, just look at the pronouns. A lot of talk these days about getting your pronouns right. Look at these pronouns. Look at the pronouns. Verse four, there, there, they, they, there, them, there, there, they, 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 there, there, they, these, they. Who's he looking at? Where's his attention? It's all on them. He's got his focus completely on these people. And every time he talks about them, he becomes more and more discouraged and more and more depressed because they are like this and they are getting that. And what about them? And did you see what they did? And they and them and they and they and they and there and there and they and them. His whole attention is on them. And God says, you know what? If I could just change your focus you might see things in a different light. I don't know if Asaph was a CNN guy or a Fox News guy. But whatever it was, he was watching too much of it. I don't know who he followed on Instagram. I don't know whose tweets he was reading, but I can tell you this. He needed to stop looking down at his phone and scrolling all day, and he needed to start looking up at the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and worshiping all day. When our focus changes from what's out there to who's up there, everything changes in our hearts. Listen, nobody is saying the world's not dark. Nobody is saying the world's not getting darker. Listen, as Christians, we are not to put our heads in the sand and pretend that everything is hunky-dory. It's not. I get that. Jesus knew that when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't implying that everything is just fine. When everything is just fine, they don't hang the Son of God on a cross. Things were so bad in Asaph's day that he almost threw in the towel and fell away from God. But the key word is almost. See, Asaph didn't give up, he didn't give in, and he didn't walk away from his calling to be salt and light. Instead, he just changed his focus. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceive their end. Surely you set them on slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, 
you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are, from, are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Look at those pronouns. You, 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 and lastly, you. That's where he's looking now. Once he gets his eyes up, once he remembers who God is, then how much difference does it make who somebody else is? He says, who have I in heaven but you, God? I'm gonna look to you, and when I look to you, it changes my entire perspective. And you say I'm supposed to be salt and light, and I'm just getting drowned here by the darkness, but then I look up, and when I come into your sanctuary, God, I see you. And when I focus on you and remember you and talk to you and listen to you, it changes everything in my life. Guess what? It's not about them. It's not about me. It's about him. And when we get our eyes focused on him, I'm telling you, it changes everything. Now listen, I am not minimizing the pain that some of you are in right now. I'm not minimizing the difficulties that you're facing. I'm not giving you some pat answer and saying, oh, come on, just read your Bible and you'll feel better. What I am saying is what he's saying. He says it's closeness to God that changes this whole thing. And we've got to get our eyes off them and they and they and theirs and them and they. And we've got to get our eyes on him and him and him and him and him. The pronouns really do matter, don't they? Nothing changed about the darkness of the world. What changed was the focus of Asaph's heart. And if you're a follower of Christ, let me ask you, where is your heart focused these days? Are you preoccupied with the gathering darkness or are you captivated with the one who is the only source of light? Jesus came because the world was in darkness. Jesus died because the world was in darkness and he left behind his church, that's us, because the world was in darkness. And he said, we are the light of the world. We need to let that light shine before men so that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Look at the last verse of the psalm again. He says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. You see, we can still be light as long as his light is shining into us. If I get near to his light, I begin to glow. Remember what happened to Moses' face when he came down from the mountain after being face to face with God? His face glowed so much from the Shekinah glory of God that he had to wear a veil just so he wouldn't blind the people around him. Can you imagine? That's what happens when you get close to God. You begin to shine. And, and people don't look at you and go, oh, wow, isn't he something? Isn't she great? They look at you and they go, wow, even that guy shines like that? 
His God must be awesome. And then we can tell people of his ways. We need to let our light shine before men so they'll see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Isn't it time for you to look up? Isn't it time to let the light of Christ shine into your heart so he can shine through you? Listen, I, wanna, I just want to be a word of encouragement to anybody who's feeling discouraged right now, anybody who's depressed right now, anybody who's lonely right now, anybody who is fatigued right now, anybody who is sick and tired of being sick and tired. The answer is not in the world somehow getting lighter. The light already exists. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to draw near to him. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. When he draws near to us, we begin to shine with his light. When we begin to shine with his light, people see our good works and they glorify our Father who's in heaven. And that's why he left his church here. Why didn't he just save you and then rapture you up into heaven the moment you got saved? Because there are lost people still on this earth that need to see Jesus. And the only way they're gonna see him is in you and me. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. This world needs us in order to experience Jesus. The joy of the Lord is available and it's seen in the people who already know him. This world is caught up in darkness. What are you gonna do about it? Let's pray together. God, it's such an incredible thing to be reminded that you're right there. You're right there. In the midst of darkness all around us, God, sometimes all we see is the darkness. And it's frustrating, God. Sometimes we see the wicked prospering and we're struggling. And we think, well, what's the point? Why am I even doing this? But Lord, let us never forget that life is short and eternity is forever. Let us never forget that our God is in heaven and he is faithful and true. That you love us in a way that's already been proven beyond any question on the cross of Calvary. And I pray, God, that you would lift up our heads. Help us to see the light. Help us to draw near to you, each and every one of us. Not to be overwhelmed by the darkness of our circumstances. Not to be overwhelmed by the darkness of our culture. Not to be overwhelmed by the darkness of our struggles. But instead, to draw near to the only one who is our hope. Father, in you is light, and that light is the light of men. Help us, Father, to walk in the life that you offer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.